Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pesaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And we're joined this week by Stanislav Vysotsky, the author of American Antifa. The Tactics, Culture, and Practice of Militant Anti-Fascism. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I guess question number one, Antifa or Antifa? I am on the Antifa side of things. So that's, (laughs) yes, that's the way that I was, that is the way that I was taught from people who came from Europe and Latin America. So. (laughs) Controversy. Yeah. (laughs) Already off to a controversial start. I guess, really, to begin with, uh, what is the book American Antifa and why did you write it? So the book is a sociological analysis of anti-fascist activism based on research that I conducted with anti-fascists in the United States. And so I wrote the book primarily because I did this research. Uh, The research period actually started about 13 years ago, uh, in around 2007, late 2007. And I had conducted these interviews, I'd written this dissertation, and had since followed up with the anti-fascist movement, been aware of it, and with the rise of fascist mobilizations and the controversy over anti-fascism, I thought that it would be important to have a sociological perspective on the role of anti-fascism, hence the book. For many, Antifa or Antifa has kind of seemingly emerged out of nowhere in North America, but that's not quite the case. Can you briefly explain the recent history of anti-fascist activism in North America? So there's a long history of anti-fascist activism in North America. And really in my book, in the introduction, I talk about how at least the spirit of anti-fascist activism goes all the way back to the 19th century and the abolition movement and its role in anti-racist militancy in the 19th century. But to speak to more of the current history of anti-fascism, I identify the modern contemporary anti-fascist movement as having its start around the 1980s. And that's when there was a significant qualitative shift in both the type of organizing that the fascist movement was engaging in, and therefore the kind of organizing and response that anti-fascists had to the fascist movement. And this organizing was one that came out of subcultures. So in the 1980s, 
70s and 80s, there was the rise of the racist skinhead movement. And this became a fundamental problem for the subcultures in which these skinheads were involved in, particularly punk and skinheads. So within those subcultures, there arose a very distinct anti-fascist tendency to oppose this fascist movement. And in the United States, we see that manifesting with the Skinheads Against Racial Prejudice Sharp, which started by a group of skinheads in New York in the mid-1980s, and then also crews of skinheads in the Midwest, particularly the Baldies from Minneapolis, who organized with other anti-racist skinheads and punks in the Midwest, then formed the Anti-Racist Action Network. And then the Anti-Racist Action Network became the primary vehicle for anti-fascist activism in the United States throughout the 90s and really into the aughts. And it during its peak in the mid to late 1990s, the Anti-Racist Action Network had over 200 member chapters, had thousands of people who were involved, and was generally making life hard for both the subcultural fascists, that is, those racist skinheads who had been organizing, but also major U.S. organizations such as the National Alliance and what at the time was called the World Church of the Creator, now known as the Creativity Movement. So this was the anti-fascist movement, and like other kinds of counter movements or other kinds of social movements, they operate in these waves. So a movement will mobilize, it'll become public, and then it will kind of demobilize over time for a variety of reasons. And fascism is one of those movements that mobilizes, it goes public. And as it goes public, the anti-fascist movement also mobilizes to oppose it. And when it moves away and demobilizes, largely because of the success of anti-fascist activists, then the anti-fascist movement follows it generally to the kind of underground spaces, what we sociologists refer to as abeyance structures, where those movements frequently operate when they're not in the public view when they're not able to publicly mobilize. So anti-fascists have been chasing fascists even when it hasn't been very public. And this was why it seemed like anti-fascism came out of nowhere, even though there had been this movement that had been actively opposing the far right in the United States for decades. In that sort of time frame that you refer to there, we saw a shift for some from, uh, I guess, from boots to suits within fascist movements where they tried to legitimize themselves. Uh, do you see a similar sort of evolution amongst anti-fascists? I think there has been an evolution, not so much from boots to suits, but outside of the subcultural milieus that anti-fascists have operated in. So it's become a much broader movement, uh, certainly in that period of the 1990s and, and even into the aughts, it was much more subcultural. And what I'm seeing today with anti-fascism is a very broad movement that incorporates a wide variety of people who aren't necessarily affiliated or didn't come to anti-fascism because of their subcultural activity. So I don't think there's the same kind of conscious attempts at mainstreaming by anti-fascists, but I do see anti-fascism as moving into something that's more of a unique movement on its own with its own culture rather than being kind of an adjunct to a larger kind of subculture. You make a distinction between anti-fascism generally and militant forms of anti-fascism. Can you explain what the distinction is and why it's important? Yes. So in my book, 
I make the distinction between militant and non-militant anti-fascists in part because during my formal research period where I conducted interviews with activists, I talked to people who could be classified as both non-militant and militant activists. And the distinction there is one having to do with the kinds of tactics that certain types of anti-fascist activists are willing to engage in or believe should be part of what we call a tactical repertoire in the study of social movements. So for non-militant anti-fascist activists, the types of tactics that they engaged in were the kind that are generally considered acceptable by mainstream and normative ideas of protest and activity. And those tend to be ones that are relatively non-confrontational. So while they did believe in everything, including counter-protest of fascists, they believe that those counter-protests should be at all costs nonviolent and under the best of circumstances should be potentially held at a different venue or at a different time and in a way that demonstrates an ideological opposition to fascists without necessarily directly confronting fascism. And that's the distinction that's made between non-militant and militant anti-fascists. Militant anti-fascists are much more willing to directly confront fascism and include in that confrontation tactics that are ones that deploy a use of force and certainly the use of violent force if necessary in order to demobilize individual fascists uh, to keep the movement from operating and to dissuade people from participating in the movement by increasing the cost of participation, which is a term that's actually used in the sociological literature. So militant anti-fascists are willing to employ those tactics, but those are not the primary tactics of militant anti-fascists. The people I classify as militant anti-fascists primarily engage in what are typically non-militant tactics. So the majority of what anti-fascist activists do is education, is information and intelligence work. So they're gathering information about the far right, about individuals, about organizations, and then they're deploying that information to the public, either to educate them so that they're aware of individuals who are affiliated with the fascist movement, or to be aware of organizations that may be recruiting, or in public shaming campaigns. And this is where doxing falls in, because it raises the cost of participation for individual fascists, because it outs them and mobilizes social stigma. And all of these things are really non-militant kinds of activities. So the secondary distinction that I make here when I talk about militant anti-fascists is that the way in which militants do this is qualitatively different from the way in which a non-militant anti-fascist activist would, in that militants are often much more confrontational and have much more of an impetus towards action when they deploy information. So they're much more likely to urge people to take some sort of action to engage in some sort of counter-protest or engage in some sort of campaign to actually shame fascists. And so, therefore, they have a kind of style to them that's much more confrontational, even when they're engaging in non-confrontational activity. There's been extraordinary focus on a series of uh, public clashes in the United States over the past few years involving fascists and uh, militant anti-fascists. And one of the concerns that's often expressed in that regard, is that these kinds of images 
lend themselves to an interpretation which presents both sides as being in some way equivalent. These are two rival gangs essentially clashing on the streets and members of the public should be alarmed at both. How do militant anti-fascists and how do you understand uh, ways in which you can address this kind of argument? Certainly. And uh, I'm on record as saying that the two sides are not equivalent in any way, whether that be ideologically. So there's these horseshoe or fishhook theories that say that the far left and the far right are somehow ideologically similar. Um, so I, I don't uh, condone that kind of perspective, nor are they in terms of the kinds of tactics that they use or even the motivations for those tactics. So that when we look at the far right and the way in which it deploys violence. For the far right, violence is inherent to their ideology. It's intrinsic. It is fundamental to the belief systems of those far right activists because they believe in a world of fundamental biological and social difference between people. And they believe in maintaining that kind of difference through the use of force. So for them, violence is an end not just a means. And that end is one that venerates violent people as being fundamentally, morally, spiritually superior to other people. So the violent individual for the far right is a better person. And so when they deploy violence, they do it because it is fundamental to their belief system and, and really to who they are on some level. And there is a distinction between that and the kind of instrumental use of violence by anti-fascists. That is to say that when anti-fascists are using force, and I generally prefer to talk about it in terms of use of force rather than necessarily even violence, because again, here the scope of violence is very different. So when we look at far-right violence, far-right violence is much greater in terms of the physical damage that it does, including the damage it does to anti-fascists. Uh, certainly notorious incidents such as the 2016 protest at the California State Capitol, where six or seven anti-fascist activists and primarily activists of color were stabbed by fascists uh, in a counter-protest. And certainly other events where fascists have come armed, uh, they had set up a sniper nest in Portland in, I believe it was 2018. So the, these are very different kinds of violence that they're using against anti-fascists. The anti-fascists are engaging in primarily a kind of defensive action. And it's because the anti-fascists themselves frequently are people who embody the types of people who the far right views as fundamentally inferior. Uh, that is not to say that they are inferior. It's just this is the far right's perspective because they believe in a hierarchy of people. So anti-fascists frequently are people who have had experiences of fascist violence in their everyday lives or threats of fascist violence in their everyday lives. And so for them, anti-fascism becomes a defensive kind of mobilization. They believe that they're mobilizing against the fascist movement in order pre to prevent it from engaging in the kinds of violence they would prefer to engage in the the kind of eliminationist violence that fascists are very open about they're very open about engaging in violence against people of color against people who are lgbtq plus they're 
open about engaging in violence against Jewish people, against Muslims, against Sikhs, against any number of people who come from religious minority groups. They're open about engaging in violence against leftists. And so for anti-fascists who embody those kinds of identities, it's crucial for them to be able to defend themselves because it is a threat to their physical well-being, to their actual sense of ontological security, to have a an entire social movement that is threatening them with violent force and engaging in that violent force in the streets. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Dr. Stanislav Vysotsky about American Antifa. You also make a distinction between the different forms of um, what's termed doxing that takes place on the part of fascist and anti-fascist. Can you elaborate on what you see as being that distinction? And this is actually an extension of what I was talking about here in terms of the ways in which fascists mobilize violence and the way in which anti-fascists mobilize violence. That is to say that when fascists are doxing people, they're doing it not because they're trying to leverage the kind of public stigma that anti-fascists are trying to leverage. So fortunately, we live in a society that to some degree still views negatively people affiliated with fascist ideology with certainly supremacist, white supremacist and neo-Nazi ideologies, at least a fairly reasonable segment of the population sees this as fundamentally negative, as something that people should not be associated with, and therefore there are social and cultural consequences to that. So when anti-fascists engage in doxing, they're not engaging in that doxing in order to provide public information so that people can Uh, physically potentially harm an individual or their family or their loved ones, they're doing it in order to basically leverage those social stigmas so that the harm is a kind of collective social harm, a public shaming. Whereas when fascists put out anti-fascist information, there isn't a social stigma, or at least not one that's commensurate with the one that uh, is associated with the far right, with anti-fascists, that To say that someone is opposed to racism, opposed to patriarchy, opposed to anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, uh, homophobia, transphobia, and, and any number of other prejudices that the far right holds is not something that has necessarily the same kind of negative associations or connotations for, again, a fairly large swath of the public. So when fascists are putting out information about anti-fascists publicly, what I state in my book is that what they're saying is, we know who you are, we know where you live, and we are going to engage in these kinds of threats of violence against you, or at least we have the potential to engage in these threats of violence against you. And this has been the case with a number of people, both people who I observed in the ethnographic portion of my research, where I spent time with anti-fascist activists, and certainly people who I interviewed had talked about how fascists had publicly threatened them. But also we've seen certainly high-profile reports of people who are well-known anti-fascist activists getting Proud Boys coming to their homes late at night, uh, having people who are fascists uh, make credible threats against them, put people on kill lists, and certainly fascist terrorist groups have tried to kill anti-fascists and been 
arrested by the FBI for those efforts. So they're not just putting out this public information simply because they want people to be ashamed of being anti-fascist, the way in which anti-fascists are putting out information so that people will be ashamed to be publicly fascist. Uh, you mentioned that, of course, uh, people who are opposed to racism or opposed to patriarchy, etc., are not uh, shunned in the same way as fascists, although... I think that over the last administration, there was certainly an effort to move the needle on that. Could you speak a little bit about how Antifa uh, is used as a boogeyman by the right? Antifa has become almost a code word for the left writ large in the United States and and certainly, I'm sure, in other countries throughout Europe and uh, Australia and other places. Uh, in the sense that the right is seeking to have a target, something that they can point to and demonize. And they've tried to do this by, first of all, changing the the strategy of anti-fascism. So part of the messaging of the right is to ignore the actual tactical uh, activity and, and the strategies of the anti-fascist movement that are focused on demobilizing the far right and keeping the far right from its activity, engaging its activity, rather than specifically focusing on right-wing ideas. So I would argue that the anti-fascist movement is more interested in what fascists do than what fascists believe. And it's not to say that they're not interested in what fascists believe, but the harm of fascism comes in their activity for anti-fascists. And that converting people from their fascist beliefs is a kind of second-order activism to keeping fascists from mobilizing, building a movement, and enacting those beliefs. So. What the far right has done is they have focused on the belief aspect rather than the action aspect. And in part, this is because there has been a consistent strategy on the part of the, the far right uh, in terms of what's known as metapolitics or metapolitical strategy that is a way of inserting their ideas and their beliefs into mainstream discourse. So this is that boots-to-suits strategy that we talked about earlier in the interview, that the fascist movement has been proactive in reframing itself as a kind of far wing of conservative movements, and in doing so has brought their ideas into mainstream conservative movements to such a degree that those distinctions are hard to make. Certainly, if one were to watch someone like Tucker Carlson, it's hard to tell where his ideas differ from the ideas of certain white nationalists. And this is indicative of the shift in conservative politics. Because of this shift, then, the association of anti-fascists with opposing conservatism writ large is much easier to make in the cultural sense. And then anti-fascists become these left-wing actors who are shrouded and cloaked in black, who are engaging in physical violence against people who are perceived by individuals on the mainstream right as being like them in terms of their conservative politics, when 
in reality, they are further to the right to some extent, and they reflect a much more active and violent kind of politic. So what we see is an effort essentially to make anti-fascists into this existential threat for mainstream conservatism when anti-fascists have by and large focused much more on the far right and, and the extremes on the right rather than the mainstream. Stas, you describe the anti-fascist or militant anti-fascist movement as a kind of ideal type counter-movement, not only because it opposes uh, another movement, fascist uh, movement, but also because it exists outside of the realm of policy or state appeals. And within anti-fascist discourse, this is some, sometimes described as uh, constituting a, a three-way fight. Can you explain what that means and, and how you understand that concept? Certainly. So the notion of the three-way fight in terms of the positioning of anti-fascists is that they are opposed both to the fascist movement and to the structures of the existing society in the sense that the anti-fascist movement draws heavily from the left in terms of its membership and in terms of its ideological base. And certainly the contemporary anti-fascist movement in North America is heavily influenced by anti-authoritarian and anarchist politics, which are opposed to the structures and systems of our society because they view those structures and systems as being fundamentally based on inequalities. That is to say, capitalism is fundamentally economically unequal, that white supremacy is a fundamental inequality based on race, that patriarchy is a fundamental inequality based on gender, that heteronormativity is a fundamental inequality based on sexual orientation, and so on. So that all of the society is constructed in a manner that is fundamentally unequal. So there's a kind of ideological opposition to that, which is the type of activism that anti-fascists do in addition to their anti-fascist activism. They're frequently activists for economic, racial, and social justice. And so for them, fascists represent a unique threat in that they are the ideological opposite to those racial, economic, and justice efforts. They, fascists, represent a fundamental reordering of the society in order to enhance the inequalities of the existing society rather than do away with them. And not only do they do that, but they do that both in conjunction with and outside of the operations of the normal structures of our society, that is, the normal ways in which our culture, our economics, and our politics work. So for anti-fascists, they oppose the fascist movement, but they also are opposed to the existing economic, political, and social structures of our society because they view them as un unequal. And those structures frequently view anti-fascists as a threat. This is where that three-way fight concept really comes in because the anti-fascist activists are challenging the way in which our society is organized, in which our society operates. So that for anti-fascists, there is this dual sense of changing 
not just the situation with the immediate threat of fascists, but the longer term social conditions that we live in. Well, Stas, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, the book is American Antifa. It is out through Routledge, and people can also find you on Twitter at Professor underscore Stas. Thanks so much for joining us, Stanislav Vysotsky. Thank you for having me. You described this militant anti-fascism as uh, being part of a counter-movement dynamic. Within mainstream scholarship, there's also discussion about a similar kind of phenomenon in a way, which is termed reciprocal radicalization. And that's also intended to explain the dynamic relationship between these two movements. However, there's, a, I guess, a, an implicit critique within that discourse, which is that sometimes, or perhaps even fundamentally, anti-fascists are feeding into the development or the growth of fascist movements in some ways by uh, confronting them and through the ways in which they confront them. How do you understand that kind of concept and that kind of, I guess, uh, framing of this discussion? I find that sort of framing as one that is empowering and enabling the far right and at the same time attempting to delegitimize anti-fascists. And the reason I say that is because people don't become fascist because they are slighted and wronged by anti-fascists. They become fascist because they adhere to a certain set of ideologies that explain their sense of what the sociologist Randy Blazak referred to as strain. And strain as a sociological concept is the disconnection between your expectations or sort of life goals and the ability to achieve those goals. And what we see for people who become involved in the fascist movement is that they have certain kinds of entitlement about their social position. They're Obviously, people, for the most part, who are white, uh, certainly a large proportion of the movement is male. It's people who are uh, at least presenting as heterosexual while involved in the movement. And so these are people who feel that they have experienced some sort of strain from the challenges to the absolute power of those kinds of intersectional identities that has existed historically. And so the fascist movement provides them with an answer to the kind of sense of uh, or perception of disempowerment that, that they have. And so they join this movement because of that. They stay in the movement because the movement provides certain kinds of social goals for them. It makes people feel important. It gives them a sense of community. It gives them a sense of friendship. It does all of these things. And certainly, one can point to being confronted about that as reinforcing that. However, what we've seen to a certain extent historically, is that confrontation of fascists does do what anti-fascists say and, and what I indicate in my research. That is that it does increase those costs of participation. It makes it hard for somebody to maintain active ties with the fascist movement and to be able to, again, achieve those kinds of life goals. So it creates a different kind of strain or a different kind of disconnect. For some people, it's going to push them further into the movement. For some people, it's going to reinforce them. They're going to say, you know what, I'm going all in on this. For other people, they make the calculation that these costs are too high, that it is too much for them to continue to be involved in this. So everything from the kind of interview and, and 
some ethnographic data on racist skinheads who say, you know, I get sick of getting into fights all the time, uh, especially as you sort of get older, uh, to people like Richard Spencer saying it's no fun to try to go to college campuses because everywhere I go, anti-fascists keep confronting me and making it literally expensive to engage in my activity have been effective, that it keeps people from mobilizing. And so... In terms of sort of measuring out the effectiveness, we can certainly see that yes, there is probably some some evidence that certain people are further driven to the right by anti-fascist confrontation. But we also see that more often than not, they are either driven underground or they're driven out of the movement entirely. You've also written about how in recent years we've seen uh, a tactical shift or perhaps innovation on the part of fascists in North America towards where they're, or they have been organising events as in California, but especially Portland, where they're attempting to provoke, in some sense, uh, an anti-fascist response and to generate potentially violent clashes, partly on the basis that they believe that through doing so, they'll receive some form of favourable media coverage, perhaps. And also it, it demonstrates that the, the, the violence lies on the other side, if, especially if, as in these examples, they're demonstrating, uh, you know, in order to allegedly defend freedom of speech or some other kind of popular, I guess, uh, sentiment. Why do you think that's occurred? Uh, do you think it's effective, an effective strategy on the part of the far right? And to what extent do you think this strategy is predicated on an understanding that there are actually powerful media actors who will join them in this propaganda effort. Certainly. Uh, I'll start with the last point first, because it would seem that having credulous media, certainly credulous journalists who are willing to reproduce the talking points and the positions of the far right is part of what reinforces their ability to keep mobilizing, that they're not being challenged, that their narrative is not being challenged by certain actors. But part of the problem, certainly in the US context, and I'm sure globally, is that there is also now a powerful right-wing mainstream media and even a right-wing semi-mainstream media and a right-wing underground media that is well-funded, that has a target audience that are uh, essentially in an echo chamber. And so even if you have certain amounts of media and journalistic challenge to the narrative, there's always an outlet where fascists are able to have a voice and be able to speak fairly openly and have their talking points reinforced and, and reproduced. And so that is one element that part of what they're doing is a propaganda campaign internally for the movement. They're going to these quote-unquote liberal cities in these quote-unquote liberal states and they're fighting their political enemies and win or lose, they're able to project that as propaganda to their movement and to their side and to elicit sympathy. Again, part of that strategy of trying to 
engage in metapolitics and and make connections with the mainstream right and certainly the mainstream conservative movement. So this is all part of that kind of media strategy. But it's not just a media strategy. It's also a function, I, I find, of the way in which the right has become far more emboldened in that they're no longer seeking out wedge issues, which was their former strategy, and, and certainly still is. The, they're certainly willing to find locations of tension around their sort of key set of issues. Um, and in the past, it's generally been locations where there's been racial tension or ethnic tension, either with uh, immigrants from Latin America or the Middle East, uh, Africa, Asia, coming into communities uh, or increasing uh, changes in the racial demographics of communities. They've come in and tried to be sort of the defenders of the quote-unquote white working class. And they still do that to some extent, but now they are mobilizing, and certainly they were uh, in the Trump era, mobilizing because they felt like they had some allies, at least, in government and within federal law enforcement, etc., that they were pushing back against their political enemies. And this is where that strategic shift occurs, is that rather than going to places where they can take advantage of pre-existing tensions, they were now creating the tensions by going into places where they're clearly not welcome, where they're clearly not dominant, and saying, we're so strong elsewhere. We have so much power elsewhere that we are now able to mobilize on your turf as opposed to having you come to our turf or us having to come into this kind of neutral or contested turf. And so this is what drove a lot of that. And you saw it in the signage, in the comments, in the lead up, uh, the memes that they construct in the lead up to their events. And, and frankly, even in the advertisements for their events, that they're basically coming in and planning to attack a community because that community doesn't necessarily represent their beliefs or their ideological vision of the world. A term that's often used in discussions around anti-fascism is community self-defense. Could you speak a little bit on what you understand that to mean? Yes. So community self-defense is used by anti-fascists because anti-fascism is a defensive activity. As I've said already, the fascist movement is predicated on imposing violence on communities of people. And it has done so whether it's in a small subcultural setting, so again, bigots coming into subcultures and, and taking control of them and using violence within those settings to push out people who they view as fundamentally uh, inferior in their hierarchical vision of the world, or to actual commission of bias crimes in the streets and assaults on people. So for anti-fascists, 
there is this sense that demobilizing the fascist movement is protecting communities against fascist violence. And in my research, I found that anti-fascist activists actually talked about this notion of spatial threat, this idea that there are certain kinds of spaces and that the fascist presence in those spaces is a threat to those spaces, hence the notion of community, that fascists represent a threat not just in the sense that they can engage in physical violence in those spaces, whether, again, that space be a particular actual physical location, uh, say like a bar where people hang out, uh, or a wider community, so a neighborhood, maybe, but also the actual sort of sense of what that community means and what that community represents and how egalitarian or inclusive that community is. Because as fascists move into a space, they engage in not just a physical intimidation, but an ideological intimidation. And there's been some interesting empirical work on the way in which hate speech and and bias crime actually silence people who are members of historically marginalized communities. So for anti-fascists to oppose fascists is to protect that community from not just that physical threat that might occur, but also the threat that fascists pose to the quality of life in a community in general and and the ways in which that community operates and, and who is defined as part of that community and who is then excluded from that community. So for anti-fascists, community defense and self-defense is about creating a broader, wider, and more inclusive community rather than one that is based on uh, discrimination and bias. In terms of the shifts in fascist aesthetics and organization, the last few years has seen in North America in particular, but also Australia and elsewhere, the emergence of a, a gang called the Proud Boys and the ways in which they present themselves uh, to the public they're not waving the swastika. They're presenting themselves as defending uh, a certain conception of Western civilization that seems to have a broader appeal. What do you make of the Proud Boys in particular, and how do you locate them, and how do you think militant anti-fascists understand these kinds of formations and these kinds of shifts in public presentation on the part of the far right? Uh, The Proud Boys are an interesting case in that they have shifted themselves in terms of who they are as a formation on the right over time. So their original inception is a kind of strange, ironic, hipster, fascist street gang with Gavin McInnes, uh, one of the founders of Vice Media, who is no longer associated with Vice, uh, being the person who starts this weird little like far-right you know, fraternity meets street gang meets drinking club meets the hipster irony. And as they mobilize, as they gain public perception, they've become less and less of this kind of hipster subculture and taken on elements of more of the, the kind of 
right-wing masculine presentation and representation and become a much broader group in the way in which they operate. So in my original conception, I, I identify them as being part of what I call the kind of subcultural sector of the right. And I, I still think to some extent the Proud Boys can be identified as subcultural, just what subculture they're affiliated with might be a little bit broader, looser, might be its own thing in terms of the Proud Boys themselves. But the way in which they have avoided using the overt symbols of fascism is in line with a larger strategy on the far right to avoid the more explicit symbols. And they have been able to take advantage of the way in which there is a series of coded language. Uh, again, that metapolitical strategy, I know it just keeps coming up, but it, it's central to the way in which this movement operates. That rather than talking about white supremacy, they talk about Western chauvinism. And of course, that's simply coded. Well, what does the West represent for them? The West represents whiteness. What is chauvinism? It is supremacy. I mean, it's really just code white supremacy. They are a supposedly men's drinking club. Well, what does that mean? Clearly, they're exclusively male. And that means that they are patriarchal in their organization in so far as it's exclusively male, it is about certain kinds of hypermasculine, uh, enacting certain kinds of hypermasculine uh, activity and a kind of embodiment of a hypermasculine identity. And this is probably their greatest appeal is more the hypermasculinity than the Western chauvinism, that they're able to trade on these notions of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a certain kind of man, in particular a white man. And that's where that hypermasculinity links up with the Western chauvinism. And this is probably why they've been so successful in moving out of a kind of New York-based hipster bubble into a global organization, because they are able to merge notions of masculinity with ideas about race and ethnicity and do it in a way that signals culture rather than signaling biological difference, which again is a fundamental shift in far-right discourse as well, one that focuses much more on cultural arguments that are a kind of Trojan horse for uh, notions of biological superiority, but still designed to invoke certain kinds of ideas and notions of who the dominant actors in the society are. And those dominant actors, again, white, patriarchal, heteronormative, and so on. The other reason I ask about the Proud Boys is because they seem to have emerged in the United States in particular as one of the more effective forms of anti-anti-fascism in terms of confrontations on the street. What do you think is the, I guess, the militant anti-fascist response to this? Is there some kind of requirement on the part of militants to confront the Proud Boys in a different manner or 
how does the, the Proud Boys ideology and presentation inform the response of militant anti-fascists to them? So if we look at the way in which anti-fascists respond to the Proud Boys, there is a need for anti-fascists to address the ways in which the Proud Boys don't explicitly identify as white supremacist or white nationalist or, or neo-Nazi. And so the education campaigns, the public shaming campaigns have to involve a great deal of informing specifically why the Proud Boys are aligned with these kinds of far-right ideologies, how their symbolism, how their language is simply a coded version of these same ideas. And that's the first step for anti-fascists, has been an educational one, and one that, to some extent, I've seen be successful in that people do understand, at least at this point, where the Proud Boys are oriented in terms of the far right. And that then shifts to how anti-fascists are opposing the organizing of the far of the proud boys and the spaces in which that's happening and and it's typically that same strategy of we go where they go so the anti-fascists have been active in everything from you know uh soccer football supporter clubs to confronting Proud Boys in their hangouts to the larger kinds of demonstrations that we've seen throughout the country. Uh, but again, here, anti-fascists have been strategic so that they are engaging in counter-protest and confrontational counter-protest when there's a strategic advantage to it so that they are able to mobilize and show opposition to the Proud Boys in a way that forces them to have to demobilize, to have to dissuade from activity, uh, rather than simply thinking about it as like attacking or confronting the Proud Boys in the same sort of manner all the time. The anti-fascists look to what is going to be the most effective means of opposing them. And sometimes it's simply spreading information, and other times it's mass counter-protest. What, what do you make of the fact that the Canadian government has recently declared the Proud Boys a terrorist entity? Uh, it's complicated. Um, as I said, uh, I would classify them as a subculture, which I, makes the classification as a terrorist entity kind of odd. Uh, I understand the logic of the Canadian government because of the way in which the Proud Boys have become one of the central and, and fastest growing, in large part because of their decentralized structure, fastest growing far-right organizations. And because one of their tenets is street fighting and engaging in violence, and therefore they are certainly an avenue and with great potential to engage in terrorist acts of violence. So I understand that logic, but the designation of something as wide and broad as an entire kind of subcultural category of far-right actors as a terrorist organization sets a potentially dangerous precedent 
in that this can be expanded to other groups, uh, certainly could be expanded to groups on the left quite easily, uh, because one could make very basic links between certain kinds of subcultures and certain uh, leftist forms of activism as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm a little mixed. Getting a little bit meta, uh, in terms of the ethnographic research that you undertook, I understand that uh, anti-fascists can be a bit of a prickly bunch at times. Uh, how <laughs> did you go about getting them to warm up? Well, the way that I talk about it in my appendix and, and the way that I sort of jokingly talk about it is I burned all of my subcultural capital engaging in ethnographic research with anti-fascists. And basically, and this is largely in the book, so I'll just talk about it a little bit. I came to research anti-fascism from my own experiences with anti-fascism. So I, I didn't actually intend to do research with anti-fascists uh, for it, while I was in graduate school. I, I really sort of went to study the far right as a kind of anti-fascist praxis uh, because I had been involved in the punk scene in the late 80s and throughout the 90s and so had been involved with anti-fascist activity and, and anti-racist action network. Uh, in that time, I had become, in, I was involved in certain anti-fascist groups. Uh, and so... Therefore, I was able to engage in what's referred to as autoethnography, where one is able to sort of treat their life and, and uh, analyze their life experience from the social science lens, uh, and then use that to then enter and, and have people accept me. Uh, as not just a researcher, but also somebody who is not someone they need to be wary of. Because as Mark Bray points out in his book, as I talk about in my book, uh, you know, anti-fascist activists with good reason have uh, a reason to be wary of people who might want to research them. Uh, if, if anything, just to avoid being, uh, being depicted in a manner that is not one that accurately reflects who they are. So with my background in anti-fascist activism, with my background in leftist activism, I had much more trust and was able to work with anti-fascists and, and do it in a way where I could come to anti-fascists and say, I'm, I'm doing this social science project, but I'm also not here as somebody who's looking to denigrate the movement and and to find reasons to scapegoat the movement or to present it in a way that's going to cause any sort of harm to the movement and not just for the sort of ethical reasons that have to do with engaging in research, but also because, you know, I'm not coming at it as an opponent. So uh, I, I engaged in what's referred to as kind of an insider ethnography. I'm, I'm somebody who knew the movement already and, and therefore was able to work and be trusted with people. Um, two final questions, Des. One is, through the course of your research and writing the book and having some time to reflect upon your own engagement and that of others, what do you think you've learned? And secondly, what do you hope will be the impact of the work that you've done and the book that's been published. In terms of what I've learned is that the way in which movements operate, and, and certainly this 
particular counter movement operates is one that is built out of necessity. It's one that comes out of maintaining a sense of safety and security for the people involved. And that's something that's crucial to understanding anti-fascism. As far as the book and its impact, uh, I certainly hope that the book provides people with a greater understanding of the way in which the anti-fascist movement is organized, the way in which it operates, and in particular, the role that threat and the role that fascist violence plays in motivating people to engage in anti-fascism. It's why I dedicated an entire chapter to this concept in the book, because it's crucial to truly understanding anti-fascism. And and I think it's what makes the book unique, uh, certainly uh, distinguishes it from some of the historical work that's been put out about the anti-fascist movement, is that uh, My book captures the way in which anti-fascists interact with each other and interact with the world. Well, let's leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us, Des. Thank you. Thank you for having me. ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. With Facebook stripping content, it's a timely reminder to focus on the communication channels and platforms that the community controls. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855 AM. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au